The New Testament reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 40. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Thanks, Claire, and good morning. If I don't know you, my name's Rob. I'm a member of the congregation uh, here. How do you feel this morning if I told you that each and every one of you had been entered to run a marathon and you had to complete it? Uh, I guess a lot of you would be looking pretty nervous and thinking, Rob, this is some terrible case of mistaken identity. Uh, perhaps a few others are thinking, I wonder where I put my trainers in the back of the cupboard. Maybe some more of you are thinking, well, I'll get through the first couple of miles, but I'm not sure how I'd be going after 26. Well, the good news this morning is that you haven't been entered to run a marathon. But if you're a believer in Jesus, then you have entered a race. This is what it says at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, just the verses after the ones we're looking at this morning. It says, Therefore, because of chapter 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these heroes of faith which we've been looking at over the last few weeks, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race which you have been entered into, if you're a believer in Jesus, is the life of faith. And in many ways, it is a race which is both longer and more challenging than any marathon. The purpose of Hebrews chapter 11, which we've been studying over the past few weeks, is to show us this cloud of witnesses, and by their example, to inspire us and to enable us to live that life of faith together. So as we come to look at this last part of the chapter together, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love to speak to us through your word. And also, we ask that you would speak to us and change us this morning by it. Lord, help us to lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily entangles, and help us to run with endurance the race that you have set before us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So how do these last few verses of the chapter help us 
uh, to run the race of the life of faith. Well, I want us to see uh, just four things uh, this morning. Uh, this is an incredible bit of God's Word. I uh, commend it to you to, to read it over. We can only get so much uh, in the time that we've got. But I want us to see four things. Firstly, that faith is for the flawed. Secondly, that faith is ambitious. Thirdly, that faith chooses to suffer before finally seeing that faith always looks for Jesus. So starting with number one, conventionally enough, faith is for the flawed. The heroes of faith, which we read about in chapter 11, and particularly in this last bit, arrive in unpromising contexts, were the most unlikeliest of leaders, and were deeply flawed characters. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and all the prophets. The writer to the Hebrews is a bit like a vicar who's running out of time at the end of his sermon and so says, I must conclude, and gives us this montage of biblical figures. And it shows us three things, I think. Firstly, that through faith, God works in the most unpromising of contexts. The first four of those six names uh, which we read uh, were judges. They were leaders raised up by God when there was a lack of faith in the land and in God's people. We're often told things like everyone just did what they thought was right in their own eyes. So in those unpromising contexts, God raises up people of faith to lead his people. But these leaders seem like the most unlikely of leaders if we go back to their origin story. Gideon came from a very low-status background, the humblest of backgrounds. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. And we've got King David, the youngest of all the sons, the one who they didn't even bring back to be considered as a possible leader of God's people. And we've got Samuel, himself only a child, when God called him into service. And though we're tempted to remember all the great achievements of these leaders, they were also deeply flawed people in many ways. Gideon, for example, was too frightened to lead God's people into battle. Barak required major hand-holding from Deborah. Samson was flippant and often led by his desires rather than trusting God. Jephthah was so rash that he made a vow which led to the death of his own daughter. Even King David, a man after God's own heart, had his mistress's husband sent into his death in battle. Unpromising contexts, the unlikeliest of leaders, and deeply flawed characters. These are the people that God enters into the race of faith. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you feel like a runner who hasn't done any training stood at the start line of a marathon, then can I say to you, this faith is for you. Whoever you are, because it's not dependent on your strength, it's not dependent upon your abilities, it's not dependent upon your virtues, but God's. And we're told explicitly in the New Testament that God chooses the lowly things of this world to shame the strong. God uses our flaws to demonstrate his brilliance. The only qualification you need to enter this race is that that faith is placed in God and not yourself. So if you're wondering if this life of faith is for you, the answer is yes. And in fact, the fact that you're wondering is an encouraging start. 
So that's the first thing. Faith is for the flawed. Secondly, faith is ambitious for God's kingdom in verses 33 to the first part of verse 35. Faith allows us to attempt and to achieve great things for God. Take a look at verse 33 with me. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. These flawed characters, these unlikely leaders working in the most unpromising of contexts, achieve all these incredible victories through faith in God. Through faith, kingdoms are won, justice is enforced, promises are obtained. The mouths of lions are shut. Think of Daniel in the lion's den, or Samson with his bare hands wrestling a lion. Fire is quenched. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. Violence is escaped. David escapes the clutches of Saul. The weak become strong in battle. The grieving receive back their dead as we read earlier in that account of the widow of Zarephath. Faith breeds confidence. As we heard from Ben last week, it encourages in us bold risk-taking for the sake of God's glory. Faith is ambition, ambitious for God's purposes and for his kingdom. I wonder if we're tempted to forget that in our everyday Christian lives. I had the dubious pleasure last Saturday uh, to go and watch Newcastle United play Chelsea. And if you're not a football fan, a little bit of context. Uh, Newcastle not very good, in case you haven't heard. Uh, Chelsea are top of the league, reigning European champions. And in the game before, they had beaten the other team 7-0. So it's sort of understandable that Newcastle set up in a fairly defensive manner uh, and just you hope that they could hang on and get something in the end. Now, that might have been a sensible approach to take against Chelsea, but my goodness, it was awful to watch. <laughs> it was frustrating because there was no plan to attack, no plan to achieve anything. I think sometimes it's tempting as Christians or as a church to act like a limited football team trying to survive. But that is not what we are. It's not who we are. Ephesians 3 tells us that the church is the vehicle that God has chosen to demonstrate his glory to the watching universe. And although we may be weak, and although we may lack direction, and although we may be flawed, God is none of those things. And so if we have faith in him, then it is right for us to be ambitious for his kingdom. I can remember a few years ago, um, sat in our partner church, Jesmond Parish Church, um, hearing about how this church might come to be and hearing the vision for it. And I remember leaving thinking, I don't know how this is going to happen. It doesn't seem the right time. It seems to require so much of us. But I remember being impressed about the ambition because it is always right to be ambitious for God. And so I want to ask you this morning, where are you being ambitious for God's kingdom? Where might God be leading you? What victories which, in your own strength, are impossible, might he be preparing you for? We serve a resurrection God. A God who can stop the mouths of lions, 
and stay the hands of kings. A God who sends us out explicitly to tell the world about him and who promises to be with us to the end and to do things which are unimaginable to us. I wonder what that is for you. What is the position of influence that you have that you could use for God? What is it the person who you can't imagine becoming a Christian who God might use you to declare the good news of the gospel to? Why are you being ambitious for God? Thirdly, faith chooses to suffer. We see this in verses 35 to 38. Faith encourages us to be ambitious. It allows us to attempt and to achieve great things for God. But it also allows us to choose to endure hard things for him too. Look at what it says in the second half of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Mockery, poverty, homelessness, even imprisonment and torture are the lifestyle chosen by those who exercise faith. Faith endures. Faith refuses, we're told, to be released from suffering. Why? Why would anyone choose to suffer? Well, because faith operates on a different logic than this world. Faith chooses prison. Faith chooses even death because it hopes for and trusts in resurrection. He knows that this life is not all that there is, but that there is a better one to come. Let me introduce you uh, to a woman called Darlene Dibler-Rose. She's a young American missionary. Um, You can read her biography um, called Evidence Not Seen. It's a remarkable book, and it traces uh, a remarkable woman's life. Uh, She went to uh, New Guinea uh, to tell people about Jesus, uh, but found herself quickly caught up in World War II. She was held for four years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, in the most miserable and excruciating conditions you can imagine. For much of that time, she was separated from her husband, who she would never see alive again. And yet, she said towards the end of her life, that I do thank him, God, for everything he allowed in my life. I wonder whether you could say the same. I wonder whether you could actively choose discomfort and suffering and endure that for God's sake. Perhaps that doesn't uh, look like imprisonment or physical suffering for many of us. But look at the second half of verse 37 and onwards. We see God's people choosing discomfort, choosing to be marginalized, choosing to be forgotten or to be looked down upon. It's not hard for us to see how following Jesus wholeheartedly today might look something like that. If we choose to be radically generous with our homes and our money, if we choose to believe God's plan for human flourishing rather than our cultures. But God says that these forgotten people, these looked down upon, these 
despised people who lived in caves and wandered about the place, the world was not worthy of them. This is what success, this is what glory looks like. This is the call that God puts on his people to live in a way that looks completely illogical to the watching world because we know we have a life that lasts beyond there. So we've seen that faith is for flawed people. Faith is ambitious. Faith chooses to suffer. Fourthly and finally, we see that faith looks for Jesus. This faith which begins in unpromising circumstances, which takes unlikely and deeply flawed people and allows them to achieve and even to survive extraordinary things, finds its ultimate home in Jesus. Let's read those last couple of verses together, verses 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Each of the examples that we've read about of faith throughout Hebrews chapter 11 are commended. But they didn't have what we had. All their lives, their faith was looking ahead, scanning the horizon for something else, or rather someone else. See, these hearers of faith were trusting in God's promises, but they didn't see their ultimate fulfillment. They were waiting for Jesus. He is the something better which God has provided for us. Jesus, God come to earth as a baby under the occupation of a foreign power. It's a pretty uncompromising and unpromising context. Jesus, who was born to a carpenter and his wife in abject poverty in a nowhere town, is the unlikeliest of leader. But unlike the list of names that we read at the beginning of this passage, Jesus was not a flawed character. He was perfect. He was sinless. And so Jesus, the one who deserved heaven's praise, chooses to suffer, not because he deserves it, but because we do. See, Jesus is the true hero of faith. It's his death that achieves victory over sin, who conquers every kingdom and who is now Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It's in Jesus in whom every one of God's promises comes true. And so our task, as those who are living the life of faith, who are seeking to endure as we run that race, is to keep sticking with Jesus to abide in him. Whether right now life feels like it is victorious or whether it feels like we're just hanging on, we abide in Jesus. Let me read on again into Hebrews chapter 12 and what it says in verse 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is how we run the race. This is how we keep going when it's tough. This is how we achieve victories that in our own strength are unimaginable and unachievable, by looking to Jesus, by fixing our eyes on him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
Let's pray and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we believe in a resurrecting God. Thank you that you bring light out of darkness and life from death. God, please help us to run with endurance the life of faith. Look into that great cloud of witnesses which you have given us, but most of all, resting in and trusting in Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross for our sake. In his name we ask. Amen.